You're listening to the Today in Manufacturing podcast. Hello and welcome to the Today in Manufacturing podcast. I'm Jeff Ranke and as always, I'm joined by Anna Wells. But Anna, there's something a little different today. David looks weird today. <laughs> he does. For some reason, David Mantian, with some questionable priorities here, has decided to take care of his wife and children as opposed to joining us. So we went to the bullpen. Because I'm a team player. <laughs> went to the bullpen and we called in Andy Zoll. Andy, great to have you back on the podcast. I'm, I'm thrilled to be back. Thanks for having me. <clears throat> Excellent. So you know us as the editors of Manufacturing.net and Industrial Equipment News or IEN.com. Again, each week we look at the five biggest stories in manufacturing, as well as the implications they have on the industry moving forward. Before we get to those stories, please make sure to like, subscribe, and share the podcast. You'd also help us a lot by giving a positive review on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you use. And if you want to get a hold of us, feel free to email the podcast by getting a hold of Anna, Andy, or Jeff at IEN.com with email the podcast in the subject line. We're also streaming live today, so if you got any questions, feel free to fire those at us. Anna, you ready to get going? Let's do this. Excellent. First story. <clears throat> On February 6th, 2019, an excavator operator, excavator operator working for Kilford Engineering was digging on a trench to install fiber optic conduit in San Francisco. The mini excavator's bucket struck a PG&E gas pipe, causing a leak and igniting, and igniting the natural gas main. No one was injured, thankfully, but the blaze reached more than three stories high, torched six buildings, and had damage of more than $10 million. A hundred people had to be evacuated from the area. And it took PG&E nearly two and a half hours to isolate the damaged pipelines. There's also a 50-minute delay in finding the street-level valves that PG&E needed to close in order to stop the flow of gas. And just to make things a little bit weirder and worse, PG&E's gas mechanic was stuck in traffic. At the, time, at the time, there's a lot of questions about what took the utility so long to respond and get things under control. But thankfully, a new report from the National Transportation Safety Board found, big surprise, that the accident's probable cause was Kilford Engineering's failure to follow safe excavation practices. So, Anna, there's a couple different things we could respond to here. Mm-hmm. What were some of your big takeaways from the story? Well, I tried to look at the positive um, side of this, obviously, like uh, <clears throat> fires in California have become like consistent and senseless uh, at this point. Um, one good outcome ar- around this situation that came to life in the past few years is California's Dig Safe Board, which um, has started to enforce damage prevention laws. Um, it appears it wasn't it was not yet doing so at the time of this accident, but it is now. And the group is looking to take sort of a pragmatic approach to um, correcting unsafe practices. They're not really focused on like uh, punitive action unless, you know, somebody's doing something willful or negligent. Mostly they're trying to correct bad behavior. Um, It's hard to measure the effectiveness of something like that in terms of like fires prevented, right? But I think it's important, Um, you know, perhaps if it had been functioning at the time of this accident, maybe this wouldn't have happened. Um, Considering, as you said, that it's been blamed on sort of like operator error, unsafe yep. practices being utilized here. So California is trying to target this um, at like kind of the user level. Well, we don't we don't know how <laughs> right. it's working, yeah. um, but hopefully it is working. Well, I mean, that is one of the things that we do like to see coming out of these. This is a horrible incident. Thankfully, no one was hurt, mm-hmm. but they are taking an approach to try to stop it going forward. Right. Andy. <laughs> 
if you're that guy in traffic and you see this three-story high fountain of fire lighting up a part of San Francisco, how are you feeling about being stuck in traffic? I, the obvious first problems here are that this company didn't follow protocol, that PG&E didn't – uh, wasn't able to figure out what was going on there right away and that California didn't have proper oversight. So those are the main things. But mm-hmm. also uh, the the idea that this uh, a, a PG&E supervisor went to an officer and the offer, officer, we understood, requested a police escort for this mechanic to stop the, again, six-building, three-story, $10 million fire going on in the city. And the police were like, no, you got to do something else in order to get that taken care of. We have yeah. other things to do. So I was – it was a curious response from law enforcement, let's say let's say that. Well, and the way that this was put together, the way everything was, was sort of formulated here, it sounds like this was the guy. So how does PG&E have like one guy <laughs> in San Francisco who was the one who needed to be there to try to shut everything off and get this fire under control? Again, I mean, two and a half hours to get this under control when it was essentially turning off some valves. Well, and, I mean, that's oversimplifying it, but and PG&E kind of got wrapped up in this, but this wasn't their problem, right? This guy was laying fiber optic cables, true. my understanding, that is true. and he hit a PG&E gas line, and that company has had some big, big problems in the last couple yeah. of years, especially as it relates to wildfires. So that's unfortunate for them that they got kind of. That is a good point. This wasn't necessarily their fault. It was operator error, but it seems like kind of an obvious one. (laughs) It took two and a half years Mm -hmm. to come out with this report to basically say, hey, be careful when you're digging stuff up. Um, I think getting, you know, kind of what you were talking about, Anna, it's important to come away with some best practices when these things Mm -hmm. happen. It seems like that was a bit long for something like that. Um, the one thing I was thinking a little bit about, too, and I know it's a little bit out there, but we couldn't get a police escort to get this guy on site. One of the things that's been talked about to sort of mitigate some of this um, in the big cities, all the congestion and traffic is like autonomous aircraft, like mm-hmm. commuter type choppers and things like that. I don't know, maybe in a situation like this, could that technology have been? been yeah, but more doesn't helpful? he have to like drive to like the launch pad of that? And get stuck in traffic on the way to that. I, I, I just don't like. <laughs> it's on the roof of his building, maybe, you know. You I don't just know. Jump maybe. in there. So, all right. If you get autonomous cars, then uh, supposedly traffic flow would be better. So you may not need the police escort for the one guy in the city to stop a $10 million fire. You think That's that right. autonomous cars are going to fix the California's traffic problem? I mean, they, I mean, I'd love to see it. They couldn't make it worse. Let's <laughs> no. put it that way. <laughs> um, yeah. Is it the cars or the drivers? I guess if there's. I mean, fewer California drivers, that could not be a bad In San Francisco, it's both, but it's the drivers. So So I know this isn't funny, but to me it is, like, because we're from the Midwest and we drive in ice and snow and we're used to it. But, like, have you ever been in California and it starts raining and then no one will go over, like, 35 miles an hour and it's raining and you're like, this is rain. It's not even frozen. It's Yeah, they lose their mind. I know. It's it's just a different – I'm not knocking anyone from California. I love California. But it's just a different – no, my brother says the same life. thing down in Scottsdale, down mm-hmm. in Arizona. They get some rain and people just like they just don't go out. They don't know what to do yeah. as far as getting around and driving. It just it's gonna wait this out. Yeah. Yep. Wait it <laughs> exactly. out. Exactly. All right. Moving forward, our next story deals with um maybe some uncooperative na- neighbors here. Residents in Neptune City, New Jersey, which is about an hour's commute outside of New York City, are complaining about a nylabone plant on the Jersey Shore. One resident described the odor coming from the plant as rotting dog food-like excrement. 
Well said, I guess. I don't know. The factory has been next door to the neighborhood for decades, but small complaints didn't, but these smell complaints, excuse me, didn't ramp up until dog treat production was recently consolidated there. So they didn't have any issues making more dog treats, bad odors, bad smells coming from this facility. Nylabone president Glenn Axelrod stated that the company recently spent over $2 million on odor abatement, charcoal filters, other types of improvements focused on solving the issue. He added that what residents are smelling is non-toxic and simply the process of making dog treats. If it were a bakery, he said, you'd be smelling baked food. If it were a steakhouse, you'd be smelling steak. Andy, I don't think folks are complaining about donuts and uh, ribeyes. Um, no, this did remind me of that uh, the bakery on the east side on East Wash here where uh, where you used to smell baked bread Bimbo, coming home yeah. all mm-hmm. the time I and remember. you don't anymore. Um, no, this is uh, – I feel bad. Um, I do have uh, some experience with living in close proximity to a dog food facility. There used to be one in my hometown, and it's not a great smell to begin with, and this sounds particularly bad. And it's even worse because – uh, as you mentioned, this had been here for years and years and years, and then they started a new operation here, and then it got to where these people apparently uh, were pushed beyond the point of no return here. Um, however, uh, this is in uh, uh, Neptune City, New Jersey, something yeah. to that effect. Mm-hmm. That's 30 miles from the chemical coast, so uh, it might be worth some perspective about the kind of facilities you could be living by. And I also um, appreciated the uh, company officials – uh, or the CEO's uh, candor. Um, sometimes <laughs> you get stuck in uh, in a little bit of PR speak, and he's basically yeah. said, "This is how this is how we do it, and uh, there's not a lot we can do other than these yeah. mitigation efforts." But you know, at some point, it's still a dog food or dog treat factory. Yeah. Well, as David Manti likes to say, it is what it is, right? <laughs> he um, loves to say that. He does love that saying. And I mean, I can appreciate a lot, and I agree with a lot of what Andy said, but it also seems like when you start, com- you know, people are talking about getting headaches and getting mm-hmm. nauseous, and he's saying, pick it out. I mean, is he being a good neighbor? Yeah. I mean, that's kind of one of the issues that I had. I mean, you called it candor, and I can appreciate that perspective. I felt like it was maybe flippant. Um, I don't think the the residents probably appreciate his tone. Um, You can tell he's fed up. I know that, as you said, they've installed $2 million worth of odor control and mitigation type technology. That's great. Um, But to say that, like, you know, you'd be smelling steak if this was a steakhouse. um, Yeah, I bet they wish it was a steakhouse. (laughs) Like, this is not the situation. And I don't think it's nice to, to take lightly their concerns. And from a practical standpoint... Um, I think they need to continue to play ball with these residents. Um, otherwise, they could face some significant risks. I mean, take the case of a California meat rendering plant called Darling Ingredients. A group of citizens who live near its Fresno plant sued the company over the smell. And after decades of drama relating to this, the company's plan to relocate to a more rural area fell through, and they decided that they would close that plant permanently instead. Wow. Um, and that was in 2020. 20, they made that announcement. And their agreement with this citizens group requires them to pay $10,000 a day if they're late closing the plant. And the city of Fresno was actually going to pay a million dollars towards their relocation when they had that was part of the plan. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, these stinky plant problems, <laughs> as much as they are sort of like kind of like a punchline, um, they can be really expensive. They can drag on and on and on. These residents are not going to back down on this most likely, you know, so he's got to figure out like 
what can we do to meet meet some kind of a common ground here or they're going to be in for it for years and years to come, I think. Yeah. And it's interesting. I did look at this facility sort of on a Google satellite type image and it is smack dab in the in the middle of, of neighborhoods. I mean, there's just houses all around it. So in terms of trying to move or maneuver the mm-hmm. facility, not a lot of options. And to your point, you know, you're talking about jobs and things of like that. I mean, this facility employs over 200 people. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's, it's a job creator for the the community as well. I did also notice some restaurants in the area. Mm-hmm. So they've got to be not real pleased with some of these smells coming out of well, there as people well. People want to eat outside and stuff right now. It's just yeah. that's not a good time for it. And one of the things that it made me wonder is, and because we've talked about these before, with these types of stories before, and as these facilities grow, I mean, and this the big odor issue here emanated from the fact that they were consolidating some operations and doing more work at this particular facility. Mm-hmm. Does there need to be different zoning considerations for different manufacturers as they expand? In a lot of instances – they're sort of grandfathered in because they've been there doing the same stuff, but now they're doing more, and there's more of an environmental impact. And I'm not saying there's a negative, like, um, you know, toxic environment that's being created here in any way. But, Andy, do we need to look at some of the zoning considerations as manufacturers grow and expand like this? Um, I mean, probably, but it's like everything else. There's a, there's a cost benefit of, you know, imposing um, more regulation and more complex regulation. It's all a matter of where you draw the line, and if it's – you know, a, a facility that's been there for decades, employing people in the community right in the middle of town. Mm-hmm. I don't know if a, if a zoning change um, would make much difference as opposed to a place starting from scratch and all the consideration that goes along with that. Yeah. yeah, I agree. It's hard to get that stuff through. You you mentioned grandfathering in businesses, but like if they've been community members, taxpaying members of the community for years and years and years, it's really hard to to make those kind of changes. But I think the change should start at the dog treats. <laughs> what is in dog treats? Your wife is a vet, Andy. Yeah. What is in dog treats that smells like excrement? So these Nyla bones are, I think I have one lying around the house, and I think it only serves me to stub my toe on. It's like half chewed and stabby now. Um, stabby. <laughs> stabby, which is something you look for and something at the ground right. level. Yeah, um, yeah. I actually, uh, I, I asked about those because I know we've had them before and uh, she was like, well, they can be good for oral health as long as you don't chip a tooth. So mm. again, cost benefit here. Okay. Um, but there are these, I don't know what they're made out of exactly. Probably should have looked into that before we did this segment, but um, they're, they, they almost appear plastic like, and it's just for a dog to, to chew on, to, mm-hmm. to occupy them. Um, so they won't wreck your house basically. Um, so as far as who knows uh, what that is, it, it may be more of a, a plastics chemicals type smell than your traditional dog food type smell. I think to say. I think it is actually coming from raw meat, like because that is a big part of what they are made out of. It's why they're so appealing. Um, it's why dogs like them so much. Apparently, mm-hmm. so it's rendering and stuff yeah, over there. Yeah. Okay, and you get more of that. Mm-hmm. There is definitely a smell that comes with it. So we'll see how this one plays out. Moving on, our next story also dealing with. Um, well, some difficulties in a local or community uh, manufacturing facility. Um, Apogee Enterprises, which manufactures architectural products used in commercial buildings, recently announced a reorganization that will close plants in Georgia and Texas. These cuts will include laying off about 400 workers. A plant in Georgia will shutter by the end of this year and production will move to Owatonna, Minnesota. The company expects a one-time loss up to $35 million, which includes about $6 million for severance, another $18 million on equipment and facility write-offs. But moving forward, 
it could save up to $30 million annually by 2023. And we've seen a lot of this type of stuff going on, kind of coming out of the pandemic. What's your reaction to this one? Well, the first thing I thought of is it, you know, it was interesting how we talked about the remote work element of the pandemic in a largely positive way when it was happening in 2020. I mean, offices closed down for a while. Um, energy use went down. Emissions went down temporarily. Um, you know, personal vehicle use went down. People's maintenance costs, gas, you know, all that stuff went down. Um, and uh, the other side of that, of course, is these businesses that relied heavily on like commercial construction and commercial real estate being healthy. And Apogee says that their orders were depressed due to the pandemic. And if you look at the data in 2020, 17 out of the 20 largest metro areas saw commercial construction starts decrease in 2020. And in some places they were down by like almost 50%, which is huge and catastrophic to a business that supplies to that market. Right. That's hard to come back from. I think that that's, in play here. Um, it's interesting, I think, as we view the economy now and we see the boom, we see the explosive growth, we almost forget that the pandemic's impacts economically are still yeah. kind of playing out. Um, I think we're going to see more businesses that were maybe hanging on by a thread to try to see what happens next, um, start to make some cuts, maybe some closures because they're determining that they can't get out of that hole or that they can make do with fewer locations, like in this case. Um, And so I think, you know, people need to be kind of ready for that eventuality because I don't think that we're quite past that yet. Yeah. Andy, capitalist economy, there's always a time where the the herd is thinned a bit. We're seeing that in greater numbers now with a lot of consolidations, not necessarily folks, places just closing completely, but consolidating work as a result of the pandemic and a lot of the factors Anna was just mentioning there. Looking big picture long term, is this sort of a a short-term pain for long-term gain in terms of strengthening U.S. manufacturing by limiting some of these weaker companies, or or what do you think? It it could be. It's tough to read um, into broader trends just from one company's decision to streamline, Um, so you always want to be cognizant of that. But also there's unintended consequences, as you mentioned, to all these things that happened as a result of the the pandemic. Um, So... I, I mean, we all kind of figured out early on that work probably wasn't going to be the same, mm-hmm. even if things got back to normal. People can work from anywhere. They There's no need for them to live in these expensive cities. There's no need to construct all these, you know, glass towers as much anymore. So um, that's one industry that uh, that probably could be be hurting as a result of this. Absolutely. And that, I mean, Apogee is totally getting out of the architectural glass business. Yeah. So you're talking about glass towers. Was that a pun? Did you intend to do that? Um, I almost never intend to make puns, <laughs> but I'll take them if I get them. So, <laughs> so I, I think it was interesting because they're totally getting out of this one business in, in this a way of consolidating what they're doing, trying to streamline, become more efficient. That's another thing that kind of has me wondering as we see some of this happening, there's less competition in some of these markets then. Is that going to be driving up prices that have sort of a negative effect potentially? on some of these purchasing areas? Uh, Yeah, I mean, potentially, of course. Uh, You know, we're seeing the effects of the pandemic impact this economic boom right now in many ways. And, you know, that's one of them, I'm sure, already. Fewer competitors, fewer workers, fewer supplies available. (laughs) It's just a perfect storm of craziness. But if there's fewer buildings going up, too, that'll that'll depress prices. So it's obviously... Yeah, kind of interesting. That's true to balance We'll see, We'll see what happens, yeah. 
Well, I know my daughters, we just did a big um, construction expansion at Middleton High School, Mm -hmm. and they were complaining because there's like no natural light. So get some windows in there. Help these guys out. Interesting. They just blocked the whole. (laughs) They were were frustrated. It looks like an office building. (laughs) I'm like, well, get used to it. it. (laughs) (laughs) Institutionalizing them at an early age here. Moving forward. Another folks that are struggling to get along here. That seems to be like the theme of this episode. Mm-hmm. A couple weeks ago, we talked about how GM filed a lawsuit claiming that when Ford named their new driver assist program Blue Cruise, it was a deliberate attempt to confuse buyers and rip off the name Super Cruise Super that they Cruise. use for their hands-free technology. Guess what? Ford has responded. And according to the Detroit Free Press, it has filed a request with the U.S. Trademark and Patent Office asking the agency to rescind some trademarks owned by GM, including Cruise and Super Cruise, because the best way to get something done quickly is to get the government involved. That will always be the best route to go. Ford argues these terms should never have been trademarked, and rescinding these trademarks allows the industry to, quote, freely use the word cruise to safely describe their driver assist technologies. Andy, I didn't realize Ford was just so much more, less about making money and, and trademarks, and just they just want more freedom, more personal liberties involved in, uh, in the I, automotive uh, sector here. I mean, if they really wanted to go fast, they could just file a lawsuit. The legal system obviously goes goes much faster <laughs> than, than the uh, right. patent office bureaucracy. Right. Um, I also didn't know you could just ask for trademarks to be rescinded i, I guess you can either. ask for anything yeah. and see what happens yeah. i just wrote uh, a note about it here it is you just yeah. slide it across the table hey we think yeah. you screwed up guy. try again yeah i don't know it'll be interesting to see if or how the patent office responds because maybe there's a proper channel for that i i, I it's hard to say um i'm always and i'm sure you guys talked about this uh when this story first surfaced but um i always like to be reminded of uh stories that uh, people or corporations trying to trademark things that maybe should stay in the public domain a little bit, <laughs> a little bit more. Um, and, uh, and I want to get through this story, but I, I was reminded of uh, my favorite hoax of all time, or one of my favorite hoaxes of all time, which was someone made up a story about Metallica trying to copyright a particular chord sequence, the E and F chord. Um, <laughs> this is probably 20 years ago now, so that dates me pretty good. But um <laughs> It'll be, and again, I'm, I'm sure you guys mentioned this, but trying to trademark the the name Cruise when we've had cruise control for decades and decades and decades mm-hmm. yeah. seems just silly, the, but we'll have to see how the yeah. patent office deals with it. Just part of the vernacular at this point. See, and I thought you were going to go like in the whole happy birthday thing. Like there's some yeah. sort of like thought out there, like every time that plays, somebody gets get everyone, a dime. Someone gets a dime. Yeah. Yeah. Didn't, the, didn't the trademark just expire on something like that? I don't know, but I I've, should have looked I've violated that. it numerous times. Yes, sir. So, sure. Yeah. <laughs> what do you think, Anna? Uh, this stupid thing. Like, <laughs> just like to, I don't know. This is just an example, I think, of corporations taking themselves too seriously. And I am of the opinion, and I don't know if you guys agree or not, but that very few brand names are as recognizable as companies want yeah. to believe no, that they are. I agree. Um, I mean, there's been recent reports that brand loyalty took a big hit during the pandemic. Um, a lot of that was due to like supply shortages. People couldn't get the products they usually buy. They buy other ones. But I think also in large part because of e-commerce, and that's actually been uh, reported that when your options are kind of this seemingly endless scroll, you have all these 
you know, you can prioritize in whatever way, cost, delivery time, five-star reviews, whatever. Um, we know that names like Ford and GM are very familiar and recognizable. But when you're trademarking every tiny piece of technology that's within a vehicle with these like super generic names, like does anyone care? No. Does anyone notice? Like I think Ford's argument is partly that, that the name Cruise is so generic that it applies to tech that's contained within nearly every car. And it's great that GM was savvy enough to try to brand it as their own. It's really not theirs. Um, but their quibble over this name is just noise <laughs> to me. Like, I think yeah. they're getting more coverage um, for this stupid spat than, and maybe more branding on these systems than they ever would otherwise. So maybe that's the goal. Maybe they're working probably together. Probably what this. they were after all along. Yeah, maybe they're they're yeah. they're teaming up to do that. But like otherwise, like, do you know what your um, infotainment system is called <laughs> and what's the trademark it that, on it? Like, does that really impact which car is which car you feel is right. better or you're going to buy? Yeah, I think that they're overblowing the idea that people are like looking at these names and they're like. Which one is which? Like, I don't care what it's called. Like, you know, yeah. no one does, I don't think. But Well, especially, and we talked about this before, you're talking about a technology that really has a negative rap. Like, mm -hmm. especially because everything Tesla's had with the autopilot, when you start talking about hands-free technology and autonomous driving, it's not the greatest thing to be touting in the first place because it does have a negative uh, reputation right now. Long-term, maybe, and I think maybe that's what GM is doing. But again, we talked about this before. GM has better things to talk about right now. And for doing this, it's it's almost like playground type stuff. Like if you do that, I'm gonna tell the teacher. Well, I'll tell the principal. Well, I'll tell <laughs> you know, I mean, what do they do? Going back and forth and seeing who can tell the bigger The principal know, is the patent office. Exchange letters <laughs> to the US. <laughs> where does it where yeah. does it go from here? Yeah. Um as a result, I think they both just look kind of petty over something that nobody really cares about. No I does. mean, what is the best possible outcome? I mean, what what is what is either one of them really gained by this? Do they get like some sort of bragging rights at the you know Pub publicity? Yeah, I publicity. guess we're talking about it. Yeah. We're talking about them, yeah. but just in a sort of negative way. So, it just seems like an odd thing for them to be arguing about. Well, yeah, it is, and like um, you know, Andy kind of alluded to this before, but like when people trademark things that the public feels are like part of the vernacular um, or colloquial, like I. Uh, once saw this episode of Kitchen Nightmares about this restaurant in Baltimore called Cafe Hun. And they had, I guess Hun is like a, a regional okay. in that area. That's just people call each other Hun. And they had trademarked the word Hun. And they got just this vicious backlash from the community. Everyone was so angry about it um, because wow. they just felt like, well, you don't own that word. No, that's not we we word. all do, yeah, right? No, so no. I don't know. I mean – that's not the the point of this, obviously. No one even knew, I think, that it was trademarked. But now they yeah, do, and, yeah. you know. Well, it's work. not even like a unique spelling of it or something. I don't know. It just seems like they're really – they didn't have anything else to do. I don't know. So <laughs> Maybe. All right. Moving forward, our number one story of the week was about a prototype military plane that crashed outside of Moscow. Earlier this week, a Russian military transport plane – again, this was a prototype – crashed while performing a test flight. And unfortunately, all three crew members on board died. The, I'm not sure how to say this, the LL-112V crashed in a forested area as it was coming in for a landing at the Kubinka airfield 28 miles west of Moscow. Russian police have opened a criminal probe on the incident. The plane flew to Moscow last week and was set to be unveiled later this month. Um, it's also the first military transport plane developed in Russia from scratch since the Soviet Union collapsed in 1991. 
production was actually expected to begin in 2023. They're hoping to make about 12 of these planes a year. Apparently, they're still on course to begin production in a couple of years. Um, but in a kind of an interesting story, obviously tragic, but also kind of highlights a lot of the things that do happen when we're looking at product development at this scale. Yeah, obviously not a good outcome for the first military transport plane developed in Russia since the collapse of the Soviet Union. Um, it's hard to know what happened here just yet. Uh, the plane was a prototype, obviously, but the country's military had been testing it for a few years, and it, its development began in 2014. So it's not like a new yeah. product, but um, I thought it was interesting. There's also a version of this plane in development that will be for civilian air travel. Russia has had to go through something of a rebuilding of its aviation industry after the fall of the USSR. And they have one of the worst safety records in the world to show for wow. it. Um, a report in Al Jazeera published in July after a civilian plane crash killed 22 people said that 75% of crashes in Russia were caused by pilot error. But they say that there's also a chronic problem with airlines using super old equipment that's not offering the precision that's necessary for consistently safe flying. So despite this tragic scenario with this prototype, hopefully it's positive that the Russians are making progress on new airplane technology. Yeah. I mean, I guess that's like the most glass half full way you can look at this, but what they're doing now is not working. Um, they're flying a lot of these little prop planes and stuff around. There's not a, a, always roads available to fly domestically. Um, and that's caused, there's a lot of mountains, you know, that's caused a lot of airline crashes. They need the appropriate technology and equipment in order to navigate in yeah. that area. And, um, and so it's good that they're doing that. Um, unfortunately in this case, it didn't work out well yeah, Absolutely. this time, but. Andy, it was kind of interesting that we actually got this much information out of a, a Russian military incident like this. It is. You have to you have to take things like this with a grain of salt when it's coming from from state controlled media like that. Um but um there was uh, a video of this posted online and that appeared to show uh, reportedly um that this plane was coming in low. Um a wing looked like it was on fire and then it just took a sharp turn and plummeted. So um that doesn't uh bode well for the uh, manufacturing and product development process of this project, yeah. which has been going on for a long time and which had problems earlier. This uh, this particular plane made its first flight in 2019, um, and it had problems then. It was too heavy. They had other improvements to make, um, and then it just started flying again after a delay of two years to try and make these adjustments, adjustments rather, in March. Um, and then this this tragedy, of course, happened. So. Um, the, the idea that this project is still on course seems a little optimistic to me at this point, given all the problems we've seen. Absolutely. I think one of the big things that they were trying to do with this plane is it's not only it's a transport plane, but they were trying to get the, the weight down. So obviously it'd be more fuel efficient, mm -hmm. more um, easier to navigate, probably faster as well. Um, just to offer a little bit of perspective, they're looking at this one holding about five tons of cargo. The U.S.'s most popular cargo and troop uh, facility, uh, troop transport plane is the C-130. Um, this one, if we look at five tons, about 10,000 pounds, the C-130 can hold about 44,000 pounds, oh, about wow. 22 tons. So they do have some catch-up to do there, which explains why maybe they were pushing this more aggressively and, and trying to uh, get things done maybe before it wasn't ready. And you talked about sort of the track record here. What I'm wondering about, too, is 
when we hear these crashes, <clears throat> we understand that it's part of the product development process, but mm-hmm. we hear so much about autonomous aircraft right now too. Does Do incidents like this, Andy, do they sort of push that autonomous argument more strongly? Do they bring that to the forefront more? Or is this just sort of an acceptable price to pay at times? I mean, obviously it seems like the more assistance you can give pilots with autonomous technology, the, the less margin for error they have. And um, Anna talked about um, how pilot error is responsible, maybe not not in a military context, but in Russian yeah. aviation overall, how pilot error is a lot of, uh, um, most of its problems are attributed to pilot error. So um, people are always slow to trust um, AI, especially when it comes to something that can be as nervy as flying. But <laughs> True. I mean, we're, we're already a lot of the way there truth mm-hmm. be told, as far as uh, these planes being able to, you know, stay the course themselves yeah. without a whole lot of intervention from pilots when when they're actually in the air. So, um, yeah, definitely. Any, I mean, we will have to, I don't know that we'll ever know the circumstances yeah. exactly behind this, this particular crash, but um, overall it seems like, and I, and I suppose this is to be expected, more autonomy has uh, dramatically improved uh, airline yeah. safety, aircraft safety. What do you think, Ken? Does this do anything to sort of push that argument? I mean, for what it's worth, is my understanding that this specific plane was developed using all domestic supplies. Um, there was nothing okay. outside of Russia yeah. that went into this plane. I don't know if if that's their goal overall, in which case I don't know how close they would be on some of this autonomous tech if they're sure. trying to rebuild from scratch. Um, so I don't know. It's a good question. Okay. We'll see how it plays out and see if we get more information. That'll be kind of interesting. So those were the big stories this week. Now we want to move on to the, in case you missed it, some stories we thought were pretty interesting but just didn't quite get the reader engagement levels. Anna, what was your in case you missed it this week? Sure, Jeff. Uh, More drama in the snack food industry as workers are striking at a Mondelez plant in Oregon, one in Virginia, and one in Colorado. Um, their previous contract has expired, and the workers are alleging that the new health care program the, the company is proposing, along with changes to overtime pay allowances, um, are, quote, a slap in the face amid the record-breaking profits the company has enjoyed since the pandemic enhanced yep. America's appetite for both Chips Ahoy and Chewy Chips Ahoy, I'm guessing. I don't know the numbers. I mean, I'm both. <laughs> but you do wonder, I guess, why this is happening right now. Um, the Oregonian reports that Mondelez's new contract offer would require bakers on high-demand production lines to be on a compressed schedule of three to four 12-hour shifts per week that wouldn't include overtime pay and would eliminate automatic premium pay for weekend shifts. So basically screwing with the workers' yeah. established shifts and pay during a time that demand is super high, profits are high, and workers are scarce. Doesn't seem to me like the time to play hardball. I don't yeah, know. I mean, like I the Mondelez worker strike is following strikes that we saw at Frito-Lay, 7-Up. Um, we saw a California Keurig Dr. Pepper plant unionize recently in um, under the Teamsters. I think we've discussed this before, but the labor, labor movement is really getting a boost right now yeah. um, from this worker shortage. And expectations are changing, and I think employers kind of need to – tread lightly right now. Um, I don't think this is the time to get aggressive. Um, and so, yeah, that was, I thought, an interesting story because 
just the repetition of it. It's getting to be more consistent that we're seeing some of this pushback from workers. Well, I don't get it with these stories and they seem to be consistent. The workers, yeah, they don't want to be working ridiculous numbers of hours like we talked about. Mm-hmm. Was that the Frito-Lay plant that we talked about last yeah. time? Yep. Or just ridiculous. 72 seven, hour work yeah. weeks. Yeah. In this instance, they're just like, hey, if we're going to work overtime, pay us for overtime. Right. How is that a difficult premise to to grab onto? I mean, that's just part of working right. in, a, in a manufacturing facility. So that one's hard to, to understand, especially when you see the increased revenues and food prices are up too. So, I mean, their margins typically in food is tight. It's mm-hmm. tough. But if they're seeing more profits, they're selling more stuff, and their prices are higher, which I've noticed when I'm going shopping, this is a tough one to understand. I I can't figure out how you would, in this time, with this high demand, would let it get to a strike. Mm-hmm. I just can't. You know, if you want to start off with a stronger position and then go through the collective bargaining process, okay. But to let it get this far when there's money to be made, frankly, yeah. and maybe they – are betting that long term they'll make more money by uh, screwing the workers out of their overtime pay and 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 your and their weekends. Maybe that's what they're betting on. Maybe, and that seems a little cynical to me. But well, it just seems odd because in the past you could replace these folks. You could get more workers to come in. That isn't the case right now. Yeah. So even taking mm-hmm. a hard line, it, it, it's just kind of a head scratcher. So the big question though is, Andy, during the pandemic, is there a snack food that just you've gravitated more towards, or a really senior? I uh, I cooked a lot more than I would have, which was probably a good thing. As far as snack food, I, I don't know potato no, chips. Potato I'm more chips. I'm more of yeah. a more of a chip guy. Yeah, more of a, a salty guy. snack guy than a cookie guy. Yeah, I right. would say that. But you, Anna? Uh, so during the pandemic, our costs went down a little bit. Um, so we started buying fancier cheese. And with that, I started buying the crackers of my grandparents, which it was like sort of embarrassing. But is I, that the brand name? The crackers of my grandparents? Breton. Oh. Have you ever oh, had Breton crackers? Yeah, like the sure. big round sure. like wheat crackers? Um, I also threw my back out this week. So I'm a million now. I just want you guys to know that. Um, that's the evidence I will lay it. Britain crackers and back problems. That's how it all, it's just <laughs> all downhill life. from there. That's my life now. <laughs> nice. Yeah, we have seen a huge uptick in Cheetos and tortilla chips. Ooh. I mean, just a lot of that going on. And I'm not uh, not really hating it. No, so. Cheetos are excellent. I was actually on a plane with a guy coming back from a, a food show. He said he, his job was quality insurance. So he would go to all these Frito-Lay plants and mm-hmm. like check stuff coming off the line. So I asked him, what is like the best thing? Mm-hmm. You can just grab something off the line. He said Cheetos. Like, fresh a, hot, out of, like a hot Cheeto? F- hot Cheeto, fresh out of the oven. He said there's nothing better. So just think about that. Should right we be lunch. putting our Cheetos in the oven before indulging them? That was, that that was that totally maybe. where my mind went. Yeah. yeah. Might be might be worth a taste test at like some point. Cheeto here. nachos or something, huh? Wow. There you go. I think we're done now. We got to leave this Wrap area. Wrap it up. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we still have some stuff to do, Andy. What What did we miss? Uh, we missed, uh, so we already talked a little bit about, um, how the, uh, or at least approach the subject of how the pandemic changed work. We've all, uh, gotten used to our zoom meetings or whatever your remote meeting program of choice is. Um, and this week, uh, Facebook released, uh, an app that it calls, where is it here? Horizon workrooms. And, uh, so they released a little, uh, little demo and what it is, is you put their Oculus headset on and you, kind of scan your little workspace and it puts you in a virtual conference room with your little cartoon avatar 
and you hold a little cartoon avatar meeting in virtual reality, just like you would uh, sitting around. Now, in the demo, they have people collaborating and laughing and writing on whiteboards, <laughs> virtual whiteboards. Um, right. And I'm wondering how they would be able to recreate my meeting experience, which is keeping my head down, trying not to say anything <laughs> so that I can go back to my actual job. Mm-hmm. Right. So maybe checking your phone once in a while. Um, <laughs> Who wants to put on a headset? Like meetings aren't bad enough via Zoom or whatever. Like. My theory is that nothing has uh, caused the public to embrace the Oculus so far, despite Facebook's impressive That's investment true. in it. Yeah. So maybe they tried the literal most boring thing alive to see if it makes it take off finally. A business application. Yeah. That'll get them fired up. That'll yeah. Because everybody fired. loves meetings. I'm mm-hmm. just trying to think what the avatars would look like. Like in this office, I cannot even cannot even fathom. They look like if you ever played the Nintendo Wii, they look a little like that in the demo. Yeah, but people are going to find out a way to get around that. Like, oh, there's yeah. There's going to be somebody whose like, hair is going to be on fire. Oh, I and, think you can probably uh, take some liberties with yourself if you want. So what are you seeing if you're in the meeting and you're not in VR? Like, because there's always going to be like a bunch of people that do not embrace the technology. Yeah. Do you there not were, get invited to the meeting? There's, I believe, there's a maximum the of uh, 16 in the room at the time, but yeah. up to 50 people can uh, can be in the meeting. They just can't have their little avatar in there. Oh. So I assume it'd be like everything else. You just kind of sit off to the side and roast the people who are actually there. <laughs> so you just see other people with their headsets on just being like? No, you see their little avatar. Yeah. Oh, in, okay. In the so you, okay, so there's yeah. no visual. Like, if you're not using the VR headset, you you look dumb with your little headset on, but no one can see you. No one can see you. Okay, yeah. it's like a Ready Player One type thing here. It's kind of weird. A little bit. Should uh, maybe approach the executives about maybe a demo of this. One's here. Oh, yeah. The, oh yeah. Try it out. Think about it. That would be hilarious. <laughs> mm-hmm. That would that would just be that would not go well. No. I can only imagine what those two people behind the camera would do. In such a situation. Anyway, moving forward. In case you missed it, mine, I, I could not get past this story just because I can't believe it's actually a story. And this is the fact that Lordstown Motors, you remember them? Remember if we talked about them before at oh, all? Oh, we, Lordstown. We mentioned yeah. them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're poised to begin limited production. Stop. Just stop. <laughs> <laughs> how in the world? I mean, I know they'd have to put limited in front of production, but how can they even how can they be making anything right now? They're I, back. I, I mean, and they're they're shooting for it the beginning of next year. <sighs> right now, they said they begin to they expect to begin limited production on their electric pickup next month. Yet the future of the Ohio startup remains hazy. I think that is a very generous term. Although they did get a bunch of money, like we did talk about that before. But what they're thinking right now is they should be able to get stuff into regulatory approval by the end of this year. And then to <laughs> the first deliveries to a select group of customers should begin in the first quarter with commercial deliveries expected early in the second quarter. So apparently they do have people on a list who have ordered these trucks and they're going to make them for make them for them. They have um, a deficit of just under $370 million right now or at least it was at the end of June. So I don't really see that going up once you start to make stuff without any more money coming in. Mm-hmm. So as much as I feel for all the workers there and as much as you want this to work, man, how can this continue to go? And who are they actually delivering it to? Who is actually going to plunk down money for one of these trucks after everything that they have been through? No, I know. Like, you know that there's always going to be early adopters. People get geeked up about this tech and they want it. But like, 
also, what happens when the door falls off and this company is just like completely shut down like yeah. three weeks after you bought the truck? I don't know. I wouldn't feel good about spending. This This is the next DeLorean, right? Yeah. I mean, like DeLoreans kind of became kitschy. I mean, if it wasn't for Back to the Future, would we remember DeLoreans? Mm-hmm. And I mean, what's going to happen here? I think that's what these trucks are going to end up being like, unfortunately. I hope I am like 180 degrees wrong on this. I would love for this to work, but I just, God bless them. They keep trying, I guess. I don't know. Should they call it, um, instead of limited, call it maybe hypothetical production (laughs) with their hypothetical customers? We're we're really hopeful that we can get these out the door. Did I ever tell you guys that my neighbor has a DeLorean? Wow. No, yeah. you have not. How could you skip over that piece I of information? I don't know. I just, he never drives it. It just sits in his garage. Sometimes I see it. That's when what I you do with them. Go by and I can see it in the garage, but I don't know. It doesn't take it out because it might break. I, well, maybe. Yeah. Like <laughs> really the door, the door literally does fall off on that yeah, one. Yeah, exactly. Awesome. All right. That's in case you missed it. Guys, looking forward to next week. Any closing thoughts? Andy? Um, as uh, as per usual, when I when I sit in on these things, I do not have much of a closing thought. Um, I just uh, <laughs> like to thank you guys for having me again, and uh, look forward for uh, to David coming back. You're Hi, David. Like, I just really want to get out of here. <laughs> <laughs> yes, Dave Big Timber Manti should be back in the saddle uh, next week. Um, Anna, any closing <laughs> thoughts? Uh, I just wanted to uh, mention that I went school supply shopping with my kids last weekend and the fresh notebook high. um, (laughs) That's still real, huh? It's still real. It never goes away. Like I saw like all the stacks and I was like, give me them. You know, like I just wanted, it was so fun. Then the crayons. And like the new erasers. Like I don't even think my first grader will use a pencil the entire year, (laughs) but somehow she was asked to bring two erasers. So we're doing that. But (laughs) All right. Yeah. It was exciting. It was an exciting day. See, and I got over school supply shopping with my kids. The first time I had to battle some soccer moms for like the teal blue notebook. Like, no, I need these color and this color and this color. And it was just a battle royal in the big target bin trying yeah. to find the right colors. Uh-huh. I tagged Slapping out. people's I, hands. I, and, I tagged yeah. out on that one because that was, that was, I was going to be one of those people in those videos from like Black Friday. Yeah. Throwing elbows. Wouldn't have been good. I assumed all kids had tablets. Is that not the case? People still use notebooks? Oh, yeah. Still use notebooks. Mm-hmm. That's, that's comforting. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm still. operating on paper here still because I forgot my laptop. So that's comforting that other people are still operating on paper. It's still a thing. Yeah. That's great. You're good, Love man. It. You're Love good. It. My closing thought is I'm going to do something this weekend I have never done before. Mm-hmm. I'm going to go to a Renaissance fair. So... Any tips or thoughts on the Renaissance Fair? I'll say right now, the over-under on turkey <gasps> drumsticks is like two and a half. Are you wearing a costume? No. No. Jeff. No. no. I'm not Be wearing a costume. Be honest. No. Although we do have some extra elf ears that I could try to throw on there. I don't think I can pull that off, though. Uh, um, let us know how the mead is. The mead. The mead will be fantastic. I will sample many of it, much T- of it. Take the over on those turkey legs, huh? You're gonna take the over. I'll take it. It's gonna be more than two in it. You're gonna okay. We'll go three we'll or higher. Happens. All right. We'll update everybody on that next week because that's what everybody will be anticipating. <laughs> All right. Excellent. Um, thanks so much for joining us this week. Again, please make sure to like, subscribe, and share the podcast. If you got any feedback, please let us know at Andy at IEN.com, Anna at IEN.com, or Jeff at IEN.com. Or Dave, I mean David at IEN.com is also acceptable. Also encourage you to subscribe to our daily and weekly newsletters. Thanks again for joining us. This has been the Today in Manufacturing Podcast. Thank you for listening to the Today in Manufacturing Podcast.